a formless field of benefaction. A formless field of benefaction. Hatred is not ended by hatred, but by love alone. This is the eternal rule, the Buddha of India. Love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, Jesus of Nazareth. I had an entirely different talk, um, partly prepared for today, but then I thought we just can't ignore the horrifying images of the war in Ukraine, the bombing of a maternity hospital, of children's schools, of the field of empty strollers representing the children who've been killed. We can't ignore the bombing of the theater where hundreds of people had taken shelter, perhaps over a thousand had taken shelter, with just enough room to lie down, a shelter that had the words children written in huge letters on the ground on both sides of the building so that they would be visible from the sky. And by the teenage boy in the hospital struggling to find a few English words to describe his attempt to flee the bombing in a car and the explosion that broke both his legs and his crawling out of the shattered car and looking back to see his mother still alive consumed by flames. At the end, the interviewer asks him, is there anything that helps you, that consoles you? And he said, playing music, actually. And he, from behind his broken and casted legs, he pulled out a guitar and played a few chords. It's very sweet. The death toll is estimated at 500 Russian soldiers per day. 500 per day. And about 120 Ukrainian soldiers and civilians per day. Which means over 600 lives, mostly young lives, lost each day for the last month. And just for comparison, there were about 2,400 U.S. soldiers killed during the entire 20 years of the fighting in Afghanistan, or about one every two days. There's a famous king in India who was converted to Buddhism by the horrifying sights he saw as he walked through the battlefield after fighting and defeating the neighboring Kalinga people. The sutra is, is fascinating to read in its <clears throat> original, but this is the summary of it. And it's in the book on vows because it's a reactive vow. There's a remarkable ancient document in India inscribed indelibly in stone that tells of a king's reactive vow. Desiring to extend his kingdom, in 261 BC, King Asoka fought and conquered the neighboring Kalinga people. As he surveyed the carnage of the battlefield and heard the wailing of survivors, he was overcome by grief and remorse. He asked that this be recorded in stone. Quote, 150,000 people were thence carried away captive. 
and 100,000 were slain, and many times that number died because of disease and so on, wounds and dying later. Thence arises the remorse of his sacred majesty for having caused the slaughter, death, and carrying away of captives. It is a matter of profound sorrow and regret. Unquote. This is just a portion of the inscription on the stone. Ahsoka had suddenly realized that his, quote, enemies, like himself, were faithful to their religion, loved by their families, and grieved their losses. Compassion arose in his breast, and he wrote that his desire for conquest was replaced by, quote, desires for all beings' security, self-control, peace of mind, and joyousness. King Asoka went on to establish a Buddhist polity within his sizable kingdom, forbidding cruelty to animals, forbidding animal sacrifice and the eating of cattle, prohibiting hunting and restricting fishing. He built veterinary clinics and hospitals, imported and cultivated medicinal herbs, and constructed roadways with rest houses and public wells at regular intervals. He had groves of fruit and shade trees planted for the benefit of travelers and established forests and wildlife preserves. Ashoka encouraged his subjects to be kind, pure of heart, truthful, respectful toward elders, and generous to the poor. His 2,300-year-old rock edicts are engraved with messages encouraging peaceful coexistence with neighboring countries and among all religions. And many of those rocks still exist and can be seen because he wanted this message spread uh, around his kingdom. This story gives us hope, hope that compassion can move people to reject war and put their energy into peaceful solutions. The horrifying sights of the war in Ukraine have galvanized our own president and other European countries out of neutrality, back to affirming the NATO alliance and back to working very hard for ways to end this senseless slaughter. In pondering this war, I realized that these pictures and videos that we see on the news every day are especially moving to us because these people look like us. They're white-skinned, many of them are blonde. It is evident that they were enjoying a pleasant middle-class life in cities like ours, with theaters, museums, schools, and universities, modern hospitals, and quaint districts of old classical buildings. Suddenly, their houses and apartment buildings were being crushed, and they had to flee. We could see the sides of buildings torn away and see the possessions still inside. We saw them fleeing with just their children or their elderly parents and a backpack for anyone who could carry it. 
through so-called safe passages where we saw snipers and bombs killing them. One of our residents is from Poland, where over two million Ukrainian refugees have fled so far, out of 10 million refugees who have emerged from Ukraine. So just to give us an idea of that staggering number, there are about 70,000, 700,000 people in the city of Portland, in in the the city itself, about 700,000 people in Portland. That's about a third the number of refugees who have just entered Poland. The number of refugees who have entered Poland is actually the same as the number of people in the entire metro area of Portland, including five counties in Oregon and two counties in Washington that are covered by that metro area. So just imagine that huge area being bombed, fires everywhere, destroyed buildings everywhere, and it emptying out and all the people fleeing to Idaho. Right now in Poland, one in every 30 people is a Ukrainian refugee. One in every 30 people in Poland is a Ukrainian refugee, a person or a child with nothing but their clothing and a backpack or a shopping bag of belongings. There's a white plum Zen center, which is the lineage that I trained in, that is collecting supplies for these displaced families. Our resident says that Polish people are just opening up their homes to the refugees because there's no other place for them to stay. One of my students in Slovakia, which is 300 miles from the Ukrainian border, is a doctor, and she specializes in diabetes. And she's collecting clothing and medications, including insulin, for the patients in the children's hospital in Kyiv. Imagine being a diabetic or having a diabetic child and fleeing your destroyed home without being able to get insulin or any medications or even food. I was talking with someone yesterday at lunch and we were agreeing that we seem to have more compassion for people who look like us, who live our kinds of lives, who eat our kinds of food, We were realizing that we don't seem to respond the same to ongoing wars in Africa or South America. And we were grateful for the realization of our self-centered view and for the exposure of our underlying prejudice. One of our chants for this period, creative period of our practice here at the monastery, which Mel Yu picked, is from the Diamond Sutra, translated by Thich Nhat Hanh. And it's about how a bodhisattva practices generosity. When a bodhisattva practices generosity, they do not rely on any object, no form, no sound, no smell, no taste, no touch, or dharma. If a bodhisattva does not rely on any concept, any concept like enemy or friend or family or stranger. 
If a bodhisattva does not rely on any concept when practicing generosity, then the happiness that results from that virtuous act is as great as space. It cannot be measured. So acknowledging that our generosity is limited, our compassion is limited, and that as things come forward in the world, these capacities can be enlarged. It's quite distressing to see people like us have their worlds completely overturned, going from happy middle-class lives to running from death, or being shot as they flee, going from a happy, well-furnished home to sleeping in a stranger's bed in a foreign country in just a few days. The veil of our being able to rely on any kind of permanence is torn away. The veil of our being able to rely on any kind of permanence is torn away. What then can we rely on? We wonder, what would we do in this situation? Would we be able to stay calm, rational, kind, equanimous and generous in that kind of situation? Would we be able to have enough internal resources to help others? Ultimately, we can't know until we're there. But we do have the resource of practice to help us. We have cultivated the ability to step out of our frightened minds and rest in the abundance of the present moment. Could we do that in a bomb shelter with the sounds of rockets overhead, crammed in, body by, by the side of the next body? We've practiced mindful eating. Could we be satisfied with what little food we find along our route away from the firefighting? We've practiced self-compassion. Would we be able to comfort ourselves and our children or our friends in such a terrifying situation? Would we be able to access the peace and stability of our original mind? We don't know until the test arises. But it's certainly better to have some mind training than none. And better to have some heart training than none. It is better to be generous than to clutch onto what we have. Seeing millions of people walking away from destroyed homes makes us realize what riches we have. And we naturally want to share as people in Poland and Slovakia and Belarus and Moldova and Hungary and Romania have done. Every morning we chant, vast is the robe or how great the robe of liberation, a formless field of benefaction. At the breakfast table, we shared experiences of what the vast formless field is and what it liberates us and other people from. This morning, I'd like us to ponder together the formless field of benefaction.
if we can carry the formless field of benefaction in our hearts, we are at least somewhat prepared for impermanence to strike. So benefaction comes from bene, which means well, and facere, to do. So it means to do good things. It's in the dictionary, it says it's the act of conferring aid of some sort, a charitable gift or deed. So then how does our robe, so how does my okesa or your wagesa or your raksu, if you have one, or if you've recited the precepts ever with us, how does that confer aid to us or others or give gifts to us or others? So that's really important to think, not only of the infinite robe, but also the robes that we wear. So when we look down, are we reminded to be generous? Are we reminded to put aside greed, anger? So let's take something concrete and examine it with the lens of benefaction. So if you would close your eyes and move your awareness to your clothing. How do you know that you have clothing on? Becoming aware of the touch of the clothing, particularly as you breathe, you can feel it moving. The warmth, perhaps, of your clothing. Becoming aware of all of the items that, of clothing that you're wearing. So starting at your feet. Some people at home might have socks on or even shoes or slippers on. So starting with the feet and then gradually moving up, become aware of the items of clothing that you're wearing. Now becoming aware of the kinds of fibers that those that, that clothing is made from. Now aware of the threads that hold those pieces of clothing together. Maybe there's some elastic in there. And the dyes, that color or the prints that color that clothing. So aware of the fiber, fibers, the dye, the sewing thread, any decorative elements, the elastic. Now expand your awareness to the people who cut and sewed the fabrics into clothing. Just reach your mind around the world they may have come from anywhere. Some perhaps you sewed yourself, but much of your clothing was sewn by somebody else. And now include the people who dyed the raw fibers and spun and wove them into cloth. 
if you've ever seen a factory where fabric is woven, they're huge, huge machines in this country. Weaving fabric. Now expand back to the cotton fields. If you have any cotton clothing on, wherever these fields were around the world and the people who planted, grew and harvested that cotton. Now do the same with the wool that you wear that came from sheep and the people who tended the sheep and cut the wool, washed, spun the wool, dyed the wool, and so on. And don't shy away from the synthetic fibers. All the people who discovered and pumped oil from the earth and those who turned that into fibers to be woven into cloth. So open your mind to all of that life, not just humans, but all of that life that is in the clothing that you're wearing. People from all over the world, perhaps even Ukraine, Now add in the energy of the sun, the minerals from the earth and the water falling from the sky. These are ultimately the raw materials of the cotton and wool and polyester fabric of your clothing. You are wearing rain, earth, and sunshine. And the energy of countless beings This is what you're wrapped in. This is the formless field of benefaction, the vast robe that you're wearing now. Holding that awareness, keeping your eyes closed, and your heart-mind focused on that field of benefaction. Please send out into the world simple prayers for peace, however you frame them. Holding that awareness, keeping your eyes closed and your heart-mind focused on that vast field of benefaction, which right here, right now, is wrapped around you. Please send out into the world simple prayers for peace.
So the wisdom side says this is samsara. This is the way it's always been. The compassion side says this is terrible. How can we help? How can we stop it? The wisdom side says there are cycles in human life. Civilizations arise, are conquered and destroyed. The huge universities, Buddhist universities at Nalanda, were destroyed by invaders. These cycles continue endlessly. We've had a period without significant wars that caught our attention after World War II. And now, We've circled back not only to the Cold War, but perhaps to World War III. We don't know. But compassion says we cannot stand by. We can't give in to cold indifference. We have to prepare our own heart-minds and practice actively compassion and generosity. Otherwise, entropy wins. Chaos wins. We can donate, which we have done. We can pray. We can practice keeping our heart-mind open and grateful for what we're given at each moment. Not only when conditions are ideal, but when they're not. Thank you.